Well, come with me, please. We'll go to Luke chapter 2, passage that we read earlier in the service this morning, and how nice when Christmas lands on a Sunday, because it gives us the excuse to preach on Christmas a whole week in advance, because I always do that the Sunday before Christmas. But do you know that there is no command in the Bible to celebrate the birth of Jesus? We don't celebrate the birth of Jesus because we're commanded to. We do it because it's so profound. We know that, or, or what we know as, uh, under the title of Christmas, is a combination of pagan celebrations baptized in Roman Catholic superstitions and speculations mixed with large doses of folk religion and mythology. Even the very word Christmas represents something antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But no amount of corruption can keep true believers from the joy of celebrating the arrival of the Son of God. Obviously, the New Testament makes a great big deal out of it when you consider the amount of ink devoted to it. Now, it's really easy to pick on the holiday and pick on the commercialism. It's easy to point out all the social pressures of the holiday traditions. They can be hard on people who don't know the Lord. They can be hard on uh, families sometimes when a loved one has died in the year before or just families are thrust together and, uh, you know, I've heard and there's a few places where maybe there's families that don't get along real well. It can be tough, but that's not where we're headed this morning. I want our time together today to be a, a respite from all the hullabaloo. We're going to look at the Bible's record of the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and you're going to see how God takes ordinary things and makes them extraordinary. I would really encourage you to read Luke 1, 2, and 3 in your own time to refresh your understanding of just how big a deal was the arrival of Jesus Christ. Now for our purposes, as we look at these uh, 20 verses, I want to organize it into the prelude, leading up to this, of course, the birth, which is verses 1 through 7, and the announcements, which is verses 8 through 20. As you read up to this, Luke chapter 1, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think it's the longest chapter in the New Testament. It's 80 verses long. And so there's a lot of context to this, and there's more than just is what, in, what is in Luke uh, chapter 1. But I, I want you to see the prelude to ours, uh, our passage in Luke chapter 2. First of all, if you go to look at John 1, 1 through 18, that's sort of the theological explanation of Christmas. It's not about baby and mangers and stuff like that. It's a, it explains that the pre-incarnate Christ was with the Father. And John is the one who explains that the Word was with the Father, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And then we have two genealogies which substantiate very important things about Jesus. When I say prelude, the one in Matthew 1, 1, 1 through 18 comes before this. The one in Luke is actually after the record of the birth of Christ. It's verses 23 through 38. Matthew is the genealogy through Joseph. Luke is the genealogy through Mary. And both of them validate Jesus' claim, his connection to the throne of David. Now, the New Testament record of all this begins in Luke 1. There, the angel Gabriel predicted the birth of John the Baptist. Gabriel appeared to his father, who was a priest by the name of Zacharias, his father-to-be at that time. Zacharias's wife, Elizabeth, miraculously conceived in her old age. Shortly after that, they were well beyond the age of childbearing, so that was God miraculously bringing to earth the first prophet in 400 years. And then six months later, 
Gabriel came again. This time he came to Nazareth in Galilee up in the mountains and (coughs) announced Jesus' coming birth to Mary. And then she conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mary then left Nazareth and she made that trip about 80 miles to the south down to somewhere around Jerusalem and she visited her cousin Elizabeth. She stayed there almost until John the Baptist was born. Then John was born amid a certain amount of fanfare around Jerusalem. Read about that in Luke chapter 1. Then we learn from Matthew chapter 1 that after Mary returned to Nazareth, Joseph discovered that she was pregnant. Can't keep that a secret forever. It became obvious. He planned to call off the final stages of the Jewish period of betrothal by quietly divorcing her. The Jews regarded betrothal, which is closest analogy for us is engagement. They regarded that as binding. That was, that was a marriage that just had not been consummated yet. So required by Jewish law for ending betrothal was divorce. Joseph didn't want to shame her, but he figured that was what he needed to do. Then an angel appeared to Joseph. No, we are not told if it's Gabriel. We don't know who it was. We only know the names of uh, Gabriel, Michael, and Satan. Those are the only three angels whose names we know. And if anybody tells you anybody tells you they know another one, they made that up. But some angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and announced Jesus' birth to him. And what, in what always amazes me every time I think of it as, a, as an incredible act of faith and obedience, Joseph immediately married Mary, and then he preserved her virginity until after Jesus was born. That took a little bit of commitment. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Well, that's the prelude. Now let's look at the birth, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in those days, well, he's assuming you just read Luke chapter 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, you've got to look at the providence of God in this, arranging this supernaturally. Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor who overlapped the reign of the local Judean so-called King Herod I. He's the despicable one that you read about. Uh, uh, Caesar's original name was Gaius Octavian, and he was often referred to in uh, historical records simply as Octavian. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. Now, you don't have to get all of this down in your notes, but he was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, who in his will named Octavian his legal son and his heir. In 27 B.C., so two decades plus before Jesus, the Roman Senate conferred on Octavian the title Augustus. That wasn't his name. That was a title granted to him. The August one is the majestic one, the sublime one, the one to be revered. And then he came to be called Caesar Augustus. Now, what we know about him from extra-biblical history is that he was ruthless during his ascent to power, but he mellowed, and he became a a, a wise administrator, a good organizer, a a brilliant strategist. Uh, He showed remarkable tact and finesse in respecting Uh, local rule as much as possible, allowing local and regional customs to uh, to, and religions to continue uh, as long as they didn't interfere with Rome's rule or laws. So Caesar Augustus became a benevolent ruler. It was his policy of not disturbing local customs more than necessary that 
allowed the Jews to have their little corner of the world in and around Jerusalem and up in Galilee and to leave them relatively undisturbed as long as that schnook Herod kept things under control, Caesar Augustus didn't interfere from Rome. So Caesar Augustus was good compared to other emperors, but um, he wasn't perfect by any means. He uh, passed an ordinance making adultery a crime. That says something about him having a, a moral backbone. He stimulated the arts. He encouraged cleaner literature. He was a great builder. He gave the world, the known world then, the area referred to in these verses, a lengthy period of peace as had not been known for a long time. You may have heard the term Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that allowed the gospel then to spread rather readily all around the Mediterranean world. But Caesar Augustus, though he was, a, you know, humanly speaking, a good guy, he was still a heathen. He divorced his wife, Scribonia. Anybody want to name a kid Scribonia? That's a biblical name. Um, she, he divorced her for not giving him a son. Actually, her name's not in the Bible. I didn't, want to mean, didn't mean to say that. Um, maybe his own law against adultery wound up costing him his marriage because he married then a woman named Livia and forced her son named Tiberius, who was one of the later emperors, to divorce his wife to marry Julia, who was the daughter of Caesar Augustus by Scribonia. Got that? I don't either. All that to say, he didn't have everything smooth under his own roof. He did soft-pedal emperor worship because he had seen how Uncle Julius Caesar had made himself unpopular by promoting it very heavily. So Caesar Augustus was better than most Roman emperors, far better than the local Judean despot Herod who tried to have Jesus killed, but he was far from godly. Nevertheless, in God's providence, he used this man who had no clue that he was being used in God's providence. That peace of Rome was a huge deal for the early spread of Christianity. Now Caesar Augustus needed to uh, manage his empire and so to resolve some confusion about things uh, they took this regular census to help him to that end. He um, Take a census, it says, of all the inhabited earth. The, the word translated inhabited earth, oikumene, King James says world, and that's not that word. But that refers to the area that had been inhabited by the Greeks and reached its pinnacle under Alexander the Great and then occupied by the Romans. Now this was a census not a taxing. Again, the King James is inaccurate on that point. Taxing was uh, usually based on some of the facts that were gathered from the census, but that came later. You might just, they might have been presuming he was going to tax based upon the census, but he was, he was counting noses is what he was doing. Then uh, verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So if God blesses you with two kids, a boy and a girl, you can have Scribonia and um, Quirinius, and you'll be you know, right there in biblical history. Now, why this verse? Well, it, it gives us a very interesting fix on the approximate time of Jesus' birth. Luke was a very meticulous historian. He really did his he really did his research, and he felt it important, and guided by the Holy Spirit, put this verse in here. We know that Quirinius was governor in Syria twice, from 4 B.C. to A.D. 1, and then again in A.D. 6. Jesus was born uh, probably in the winter of 5 to 4 B.C., now, I know you're thinking B.C. stands for before Christ. Why was Jesus born four years before before Christ? Well, uh, it has nothing to do with him getting the calendar wrong. It has to do with the, when converting from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar centuries later, somebody counted wrong. 
So Jesus was born in what on our calendar would be uh, probably 4 BC. Now it's interesting because we know this happened during the um, first time that Quirinius was the governor of Syria, but we also know Herod was still alive at that time, and he died in 4 BC. We have a really good fix on when Jesus was actually born. So, chapter 2, verse 3. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. People in this census were to be enrolled according to their ancestral homes. Thus, they needed to go to the town where their family register was kept. Now, we don't relate to this method, this method, but it was well known at that time. People weren't as mobile as they are now to move all over the place. We know this same method was used in Egypt. If that were employed now, I would probably have to go to Iowa to the land of my great and great-great-grandfathers to register in the Harris tradition. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now, if you whip out your book of Bible maps, you'll find Galilee and you'll find Jerusalem. And you says, wait a minute, it says he went up. It's almost straight down on your map. What does that mean? Well, he's not speaking as far as a compass is concerned. He's talking about topography. Jerusalem was the highest point. So everywhere when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem, north, east, south, and west. It's all up to uh, Jerusalem. Now, Bethlehem is about 10 or 15 miles uh, outside of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was called David's city way back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 6. Interesting, you can, you can study how David came to make um, Jerusalem the um, the, the, the capital city, but he was family was from Bethlehem. Now there's a really interesting question to which the official answer is, we don't know the answer for sure, but did Joseph know of the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which says that the Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem? Did Joseph know that? Well, we're not told that Joseph knew that, but we do know, remember when the Magi came and they were saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod immediately went to the scribes and said, where do the scriptures say? And they said, they quoted Micah chapter 5 verse 2. So we know that that wasn't some kind of obscure knowledge. It could be that, that Joseph and Mary actually understood the significance of this. We don't know, but either way, the majesty of God orchestrating all of this is just glorious. So Joseph took his pregnant virgin bride on the trip from Nazareth in Galilee, about 80 miles to Bethlehem in Judea, a several days journey. And by the way, the Bible does not mention a donkey being involved. So um, we don't know her means of transportation. Most people walked. Now, I don't know how many highly pregnant women walked, but imagine it any way you want to. We don't know about a donkey. Engaged in our translation means that they were in that Jewish betrothal period, approximately one year prior to the wedding feast and when the physical union to consummate the marriage took place. But this was like engagement, but stronger than that. The couple would, would be legally married, but in the, in the betrothal period during that time. And when it says Joseph took her as his wife, but kept her a virgin, it means that he took her into his household. 
and, and they were together from that time on. It was during the betrothal year that Jesus was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Joseph immediately took her into his household. He, despite the questions and the shame that they surely would have received from all who couldn't possibly understand. I mean, can you imagine the conversations? Joseph, Mary is pregnant? Really? How'd that happen? Well, um, God did it. Right, Joseph. Can you imagine the gossip around the little village of Nazareth? But he took her in, and he kept her a virgin until after Jesus was born. So engaged or betrothed, that's still the proper word to describe that relationship. The gossip tongues surely were flying, and then Joseph and Mary conveniently leave town, and they don't see him for several years till after the baby is born and the little diversion down to Egypt, and then they, and then they came back, and those things followed them, I'm sure, through their lives in Nazareth. Verse 6, while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. That means that the natural course of the pregnancy wound up coinciding with God's perfectly chosen time for the birth of His Son. If you've been with Scott Basolo in the study of Daniel on Wednesday nights, you understand the spectacular significance of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. It was exactly the predicted time. God and only God knows the end from the beginning and reveals it to us sometimes in advance when it is for our good. Then verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, firstborn is a very important word in light of some of the things that have been made up about Mary, some of the mythological traditions and superstitions. Jesus was God's only begotten son, but Jesus was Mary's firstborn. There were others. The Bible mentions at least six children born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus by natural means. Now, there are four boys named for brothers of Jesus or half-brothers technically, and it says, and his sisters were there also. So plural, at least two. So we say at least six more uh, children. They were a homeschooling family. They had as many as they wanted. That was, a, that was a cultural anachronism, and it was a snark, okay? God bless those who fill the earth and multiply. But the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, it's made up. It's a lie. It is absolutely 180 degrees opposite to what the Bible says. If you believe the Bible, you cannot believe that that's true. It goes right along with the concept of her immaculate conception, that she was sinless. No, she wasn't. When Gabriel came and told her what was going to happen, among the things that she said... I re- that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The idea that Mary is a co-redemptrix who plays a role in our redemption, I'm sorry, that's part of Christmas, but it's not true. This is a glorious thing, but let's not add to it. She takes this precious baby, wraps him in cloths, 
Now, the King James translators took the liberty to call them swaddling clothes. It just it literally means bands of cloth, long strips of cloth. They were often used medically, and it refers to um, um, a system of skillfully um, wrapping up the baby to make sure he or she is safe and secure and warm and comfortable and kept calm. You can go on YouTube and find videos for how to swaddle a baby. And um, you may not remember it, but you may have been swaddled. You never, you never know. Not recently, but took the baby, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. A manger. What do they mean by that? Well, it's a feeding trough. It was the right shape, so it could be used something like a crib. Now, listen, I know we sang the song today. We're not going to execute uh, church discipline on Christian for making us say this, but understand, a little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's made up. That's not true. Crying for a baby. I mean, you know when a cry is a manifestation of sin. For a newborn, that's not sinful. That's like the gas gauge. It either tells you something is full and needs to be emptied or something is emptied and need to be, needs to be filled. That's how they communicate. He made any noise. He might have said, Dear sweet Mother Mary, I need a change. But I don't think that that's how it went. There was no room for them at the inn. Well, if you've traveled 80 miles, uh, you need a place to stay. Well, that would be the logical place, but Bethlehem was a small town. It was likely filled with other people traveling for the census, maybe even government officials as well, uh, traveling as Joseph and Mary were for whatever reasons. But you can disabuse yourself of the notion that Joseph and Mary were destitute or homeless. Uh, quite, the, quite the opposite. Joseph was a righteous and responsible Jewish man, devout man, who in the betrothal period he would have been saving up from his carpentry business to be ready for the marriage They fully intended to pay their own way and to stay at the inn. I once got a letter from the president of a school that I once attended. It was a Christmas fundraising letter and said, isn't it amazing how God used a a homeless, unwed mother? Wait a minute. Joseph took her into his home. She wasn't homeless, and she wasn't destitute. This was arranged by God. Well, it is assumed, because of the reference to the manger, which is a feeding trough, that this uh, took place in some place where animals were kept. That's not too big of a stretch. A manger is just a long... Uh, open box or trough for animals to uh, to feed from, and in a pinch, it certainly could double as a cradle. I've known of people, you know, being in a motel in the olden days before all these fancy, you know, car seats and everything. Open a drawer halfway, put the baby in, and you know they don't fall out. Um, you hope um, it was just it was just a makeshift thing because there was no room in the inn. Our cute. Manger scenes with animals all around focusing on Jesus. They're cute, but that's mythology. That's all made up. Now, there is one on my front lawn. I I, I confess to that. It's a great way to visually think of the fact that the King of kings and Lord of lords humbled himself and came as a baby laid in a manger. The amount of speculation that has taken place around these few words here is absolutely astounding. No, we don't know what the innkeeper said. We don't know if any animals were present when Jesus was born. There is one rather popular theory among 
some of the commentators that it may have been that they were in a cave that was like an ancillary part of the inn. It was used for sheltering and containing the animals of the travelers who came to the inn, kind of like the RV parking for those who are uh, staying at the inn. That theory began with a man named Justin Martyr, who was in the first century, 165 to, or 114 to 165 AD. Um, we don't know about that. You can uh, be shown that place uh, around Bethlehem. And, and frankly, when I'm, when I'm in Israel, I really like the fields outside of Bethlehem. There's nothing there. Little house here, little shack there. Maybe you see some, some sheep, some shepherds, some goats uh, uh, grazing in that. I can picture being in that place with it pitch dark and the glory of God lights the place up. You go into Bethlehem and you want to see where Jesus was born and somebody built a big gaudy church over it. And it, you can't recognize it from that. But we don't know exactly the place. This word, I, this week I, I heard somebody repeat the alleged application. What does Luke 2.7 mean? And the application was, this Christmas, be sure you make room for Jesus. Now, I get the sentiment, okay, don't ignore Jesus. But the theology behind that is abominable. Make room for Jesus implies move some things around in your life so that you can make space for Him to occupy. You know, you move some furniture in your living room to make room for the Christmas tree, so move some stuff in your life to make a little room for Jesus. Please also disabuse your idea of making room for Jesus as if He's a holiday decoration. Man, please disabuse yourself of this vapid idea that Jesus is the reason for the season. No, the reason for the season is the tilt of the earth's axis as it revolves around the sun. Okay? Uh, The... The proper application of this is what Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Don't make room for Jesus. He wrote, for me to live is Christ. I am all about living for Him. He is everything to me. And to die is gain, he says. Or Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. You don't just make room for Him. He is Lord at His birth. And that's what He will always be. Now that's the birth of Jesus. Just seven verses. Pretty cool. But what contrasts? If you were to start in uh, Luke chapter 1 and move into Luke chapter 2, Gabriel says to Mary, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And then the baby's born and there was no room for them in the inn. Or he will be called great And will be called the Son of the Most High. His kingdom will have no end. And what was his first throne? A manger. In an obscure place. Out of the eyes of everybody that thought themselves important. Now that should help you understand 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. Which is actually a pretty good Christmas verse. I ought to use this to preach on Christmas sometime. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, I mean, He is at the right hand of the Father. He is God, face to face with the Father. He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. Again, don't read into into that destitution on the part of Joseph and Mary. Read into that He humbled Himself and took on human flesh and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Do you see the sovereignty of God in this? Caesar Augustus made his decree, and he had no idea that God specified that he would make that decree at that time so that the perfect time for the human realization of God's eternal plan of redemption would happen on the right day. Never forget, God is in control. And he loves to hook that word extra onto the ordinary. Just ponder the humility and the simplicity of all of this. The one who would eventually say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's had not yet been born when Caesar was obeying him, even though he didn't know it. And Joseph and Mary never thought of refusing to obey the emperor in anything that was not contrary to the will of God. And God used it all. He took all these ordinary things to do the most extraordinary thing that has ever been done. Now let's look at the announcements in verses 8 through 20. There are three rounds of announcements of Jesus' birth. There's an angel to the shepherds. Then there's a heavenly throng speaking to the shepherds, and then the shepherds speaking to the others in verse 8. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. If you can go with, to Israel with me next year, I hope we stop at that place and you can overlook that. that as I say, that just, to me, it's, it's one of the most um, goosebumpy things there. Second, of course, to the Olivet, uh, or the uh, uh, Mount of Olives. Now these were probably poor men, but they were devout in their commitment to the Lord. Uh, overall, shepherds were the nobodies of their culture. They were a despised class of people. They were consistently looked down upon. They were not allowed to give their testimony in courts. They probably struggled from day to day just to you know, eat and live and continue to eat and live and take care of the sheep. I would imagine that they probably relied on royalties for imposing for nature, nature scene, nativity scenes, I should say, to uh, help them scrape by for those first few decades. Maybe it was because of the social ostracizing that kept them from the temple that also kept them from all the corruption and the compromises of the religious leaders of that time. They were pure, simple believers in God. And what they heard that night, oh, what a shock. Verse 9, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. No, they didn't see a star from thousands of miles away slowly getting bigger. It's pitch dark. And suddenly... An angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. Listen, if you encounter an angel, unless it's one of those that sneaks in and out and, does, and pretends to be human and you, you can't even notice, if you see an angel in garb as an angel, you're going to be scared to death. Remember the standard first words of angels when they encounter humans? Here it is in verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. <laughs> yeah, why did he say that? Because they were. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. This is for everyone, guys. Anyone and everyone. The angel could have said, notice we're not in the temple in Jerusalem. We're out here in the fields with you. This is for anyone and everyone, regardless of nationality, age, sex, wealth, fame, social position, education, reputation. God honored these humble, despised shepherds with the first announcement of the arrival of His Son. Verse 11 for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths 
and lying in a manger. By the way, I don't think Jesus was born at night. Today, a Savior has been born for full effect. The glory light comes at night. They're already settled in. This is a Savior who is the Lord, Christ, Messiah, the Lord. You know, this controversy about the Lordship of Jesus is really foolishness. He was born the Lord. He is the Lord. He is the Master. You cannot have what Jesus offers unless you have Jesus, which means you submit to who He is. If Jesus is not your Lord, He's not your Savior. He is the Savior who is the Lord. Don't make room for Him. Yield your life to Him without reservation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This time of year, it's cool. It's even socially acceptable to say nice things about Jesus. Nearly everyone will give lip service to Jesus. That is, unless you get around to defining who He is. No, no, I, I, I'm not into that. Verse 13, and suddenly, notice the two suddenlies scared the daylights out of him when one angel appeared. And then suddenly comes a multitude. There appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Now as much as we enjoy the song, and I do really enjoy the song, there's a version Marcia and I have been playing this whole Christmas season, I'm pretty sure that that mass of angels did not suddenly lapse into Latin and pronounce glory to God, the Latin gloria, by making the O sound into 16 syllables. I counted them this week. Glow, oh, 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 Ria. Matter of fact, you know the text doesn't sing doesn't say that they sang. It says they said it. I don't know how they did it. I don't care if they sang. I'm glad we like to sing it. Singing is a good way to remember things. You can remember a a Bible verse that way, even if you do happen to be remembering it in Latin, which you don't speak. But they were saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, God came to earth. On earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. The peace of God is for those who are within God's pleasure. That's another way of saying, since we know the rest of the the story here, this is for those who are in Christ. They're the ones who experience God's peace. Then we see the evidence of the genuine faith of these shepherds, starting at verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, I imagine they said some other things first, like, did that really happen? Did we just see that? What did you hear? But then they were saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Then they were outside of town. And see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And they came and worshipped the one who was going to save them. Now what's the proper response to the knowledge that God came in the person of that baby? The Savior who is Christ the Lord? Well, verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. When you know the good news, when you know something that wonderful, you want to tell it to anybody who will listen. Now notice the they came and made known what, the, um, what had been told them. Well, who were they making it known to? There may have been others around, but primarily 
Mary and Joseph, wouldn't you like to be there and eavesdrop on that conversation? What did Gabriel look like to you? What did he say to you? What did he say to you, Joseph? Well, here's what he said to us. What a glorious conversation that must have been. And then we have this really interesting verse, 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. If you keep reading in Luke, which I do hope you'll do, verse 51 says the same thing about Mary again 12 years later as she watched Jesus grow. And she had 30 years to know all of this before it began to be unfolded for the world to see in the public ministry of Jesus. Think her heart was full? Wow, it's hard to fathom. Surely she was wondering, why me? How can I ever do this? But she did. And look at verse 20 then. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. The circle in this passage is complete. God speaks here through angels. Men hear and they obey. They are blessed in their obedience and then they return the praise and thanksgiving to God. That's it. That's the simplicity of the inspired record of the birth of Jesus Christ. Everything else we associate with it is all conjecture or folk religion or traditions or whatever. And most of it's wrong. There are lots of things associated with the holiday that we call Christmas that we could be pretty critical of. Um, There's the commercialism, there's the abuse of alcohol, there's the overspending, the nonstop Christmas movies about the magic of Christmas and they never mention Jesus. There's the just believe things thanks to, what is it, um, Polar Express? Just believe. Believe what? You got to believe who? You got to believe what happened. Certainly one of the worst things that goes on in our world, something that we can, with great wisdom and compassion and tact, speak truth and love about. One of the worst things about this time of year is adults lying to children, teaching them mythology and false doctrine of salvation based on human merit. Ponder what Santa Claus actually represents, and you will never again want a child to believe in Santa. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. In other words, he's God. He's omniscient. He, he, he rewards the good and he punishes the bad. Sure, that's the gospel. And everybody thinks they're good. Everybody gets a present. Now, we have something infinitely better. What we celebrate is the birth of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He did it all in our world. He took ordinary people. Elizabeth was faithful. She never gave up. God never forgot her. And He blessed her especially by His sovereign grace. And she was the mother of the first prophet in 400 years. Zacharias, his very name means Jehovah remembers. He was the one who could have first said, although somebody said it later, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Remember his response when the angel came to him? We can all relate to him. Maybe a lesson we could apply from Zacharias is if if we would let God keep our mouths shut for a while, we might be more useful to him in the end. (laughs) Joseph was a normal guy, young man, small town. He was, though willing to bear reproach, He risked all. He gave up so much to serve God. His obedience to all that he knew that God wanted him was was immediate and complete. What an example he is. Mary, she was an ordinary girl. 
She was the chosen servant of God. Now, he's not calling you to do the same thing he called Mary to do, but he is calling us all to be as humble and as willing as she was. If you want to know the full joy of what he has for you, then with Mary, let's cry out, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. These were just normal shepherds. They got to rejoice with the crowd from heaven. Wow! Learn from their example of praising God and sharing their praises and the good news of the Savior with everybody around. Let's remember and celebrate what it means that Christ came into this world. Let's pray that we'll find ways to share that with people around us. So my friends, we still have a week until the day. And by the way, we don't know the exact day for sure. But have a Merry Christmas And in the midst of whatever else you do, enjoy what you do. But make sure that your heart is right with the one who came, the Savior and the Lord of all. Jesus came as that little baby so that he could grow up and live a perfect sinless life and then die in your place. Bethlehem's treasure became the sacrifice beyond all measure. That's one of the better songs we have. Let Him exchange your sin for His righteousness and the value of His sacrifice will be yours for eternity. All the rest of what happens can make for a nice holiday, but the crucial thing is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Stand in that grace. Stand on that truth. Stand in Christ. Father, thank You for Your marvelous goodness in sending us Your Son who died that we might live. Thank You for that that grace which... We, we can't even fully describe, but it is that grace in which we stand. Father, please don't let us fall into the silliness of trying to make room for Jesus. We don't make room for Him, Father. We bow before Him and thank You for His grace in which we stand and in whose name we pray. Amen.